The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome Mr. Michael Fakri. He is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. He is also a professor at the University of Oregon School of Law, where he teaches courses on human rights, food law, development, and commercial law. He is also the director of the Food Resiliency Project in the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Center, which addresses key environmental and policy issues relating to all stages of our food system. Mr. Fakhri teaches courses on the right to food, delivers lectures, and leads public dialogues on human rights and development with peasant organizations, labor unions, and human rights activists internationally. And during his practice as a lawyer, Mr. Fakhri fought for the rights of people who were indigent and incarcerated in a psychiatric institution. He was appointed special rapporteur on the right to food by the UN's Human Rights Council in March of 2020. And in this position, he has authored several reports that caught my interest, including Seeds, Right to Life and Farmers' Rights, and Conflict and the Right to Food, which includes attention to how different forms of violence exist in our food system. And I'll provide links to both of those reports. Mr. Fakhri holds a doctorate from the University of Toronto, master's from Harvard Law School, Bachelor of Laws from Queen's University, and a Bachelor of Science in Ecology from Western University. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Melinda. It's such a pleasure to be on your program. Well, I'm curious, with your law background, what was it that led to your interest in food? Oh, you know, it started off kind of separate. I had practiced law, and then I was a grad student, and I needed to find a topic. And so, you know, what led me to law is an interest in social justice, in being part of people's struggle and and that sort of thing. And then I needed to pick a topic to devote my research for several years. And they always say, write what you know. And I figured if I'm going to be spending a long time writing a book or a dissertation, I better be having a good time. And it occurred to me, I think about food all the time. It's what I talk about with friends. It's the first thing I ask is, what did you eat today? How did you make it? It's what I talk about with my mom and dad when I call home. And so I knew through food, I could tell any story. And it allowed me to be able to engage with anybody. So if anyone asked me, what am I working on? I could say, if I'm working on food and agriculture, it would inevitably lead to a very interesting conversation that wasn't just about law or my own research. I think food is at the core of everything. I'm probably biased as a dietitian, but I don't believe we give it enough reverence and thought. And that is why I am so pleased to have you here today. I am wondering, what exactly is a rapporteur? And what is your role specifically in this position with the United Nations? Yeah, I mean, despite the fancy term, I mean, rapporteur is just, it's a French term for reporter. So first of all, it's a volunteer position. And I'm an independent expert for the UN. And I act as the eyes, ears and good conscience for the UN system on all matters regarding hunger, famine, and malnutrition 
from a human rights perspective. So to think of it in another way is my job is to talk to everybody and to learn from everybody from all over the world and to then share what I learned from everyone, to learn in public, to share that knowledge and to highlight issues that might not be getting the attention it deserves. Mm. And that's what I loved about your reports. And I want to start our conversation with the critique that you gave of the United Nations Food Systems Summit, which was held in September of 2021. And in that review, you brilliantly question the assumption that industrial agriculture and food production is part of the solution to food insecurity. Instead, you are a supporter of agroecology. Tell us why we should understand or how we should understand agroecology, why you support it, and why you singled out this assumption about industrial ag. So often in terms of when people are trying to figure out what's the problem, to ask the question, you know, what's the problem in our food system? Not surprisingly, people start with hunger. And hunger is an issue in rich countries and poor countries alike. Hunger and malnutrition is often invisible. You can't always tell if someone doesn't have access to good food just by necessarily looking at them. It could really be anyone. You know, I I work at a university and the rates of hunger among university students is quite high, but many people don't realize that. And though the solution that has been put forward since around the 1950s and 1960s in the United States has been to produce as much food as possible by any means necessary at any cost. And unfortunately, that's actually not the right solution because the problem with hunger and malnutrition is rarely an issue of having enough food. So today, if you look at how much food we have globally, we have more than enough food to be able to feed everyone on the planet and then some, even with the increase of population. What causes hunger, what causes malnutrition, what causes famine is always a political failure. It's always when institutions fail and it's always when political actors make certain choices that predictably will lead to hunger and famine. So hunger, first and foremost, is not a problem of resources. It's a political problem. So what happened in the 50s and 60s is this concern regarding hunger, and they wanted to produce as much food as possible. So people started treating their land like a factory. This idea of input and output. If I pump the land full of chemicals and synthetic fertilizers, and use all the science and all the technology and all the fossil fuels I can amass, I'm going to produce a huge amount of food and that's going to feed the world. Well, what happened, unfortunately, over the decades, what we've seen is that we keep producing more food than we need. We keep producing the wrong kind of food. So in the United States, we're producing corn and soya and things that people don't necessarily need to be eating more of. And it's putting poison into our soil. It's leaving our land barren. And so that's been the problem. So in terms of agroecology, agroecology is a term that really came out in the 2000s, so about 20, 30 years ago. But what it describes is a long tradition of people's relationship with land, which prioritizes biodiversity. And the idea is to try and mimic natural processes, to look to nature, to look to our environment, to look how things are already happening. And to mimic those processes and integrate that into our farming practices. But it also adds another dynamic, which is an element of social justice. 
And agroecology is not just about mixing ecology and agriculture, but it's a practice and a movement that understands how we treat the land cannot be separated from how we treat people. So you can't be exploiting your workers, but saying, I'm regenerating my soil. Or you can't be treating your workers really well, but using synthetic pesticides. Those two things actually are contradictory because if you're using pesticides in the soil or if you're using chemical fertilizers, there's a good chance that's harming the workers as well. It's harming the people working the land and vice versa. So it tries to look at things holistically, including our relationship with each other, with plant life, with animal life, and with the land itself. Do you think or have you seen many agricultural colleges, say at land-grant institutions, promoting agroecology? You know, it's becoming more and more popular here and there. And some land-grant universities do have an agroecology program, and it's growing. What I see more commonly now is what's called regenerative agriculture. And I'm sorry to start throwing in more terms, but you know, these are the terms that are out there. Regenerative agriculture is very similar, but more often than not, it leaves out that social justice dimension. So I think what I've seen is the change comes from students. So I think if more and more students push and sort of learn about these areas and pressure their universities, form their own student organizations, connect with local farmers and local organizations that are engaged in agroecological practice, I think that's what will generate wide-scale change amongst land-grant universities. But for now, I do see it in some of them here and there. Well, I think becoming familiar with the term and what it means is a start to help us embrace it. And I share your awareness of the term regenerative farming. I'm concerned that it's a word just like sustainable Mm -hmm. that will be co-opted by industrial agribusiness. Yeah. As if to say you can have regenerative farming and still use the agrochemicals. Exactly. I mean, I, I share the same concern. And the other problem, it's not just that it's they're using chemicals, which would be problematic. Ultimately, it's about power. It's who gets to decide how we relate to the land and what we put into the land and who benefits. And I'll share a story, sort of the parallel story. You know, today, organic food is considered something expensive and just for upper middle class people and something sort of treated as a thing of privilege. But the organic movement in the United States started in the 70s, was considered edgy, it's sort of connected to some degree with some counterculture elements, but it came from farmers themselves. And the purpose of organic farming came from farmers who wanted to plant and grow in a healthier way. But what happened then is corporations took over this notion of organic, and now you have what we could call big organics. So large corporations that have control over huge amounts of land that might meet some formal criteria of organic, but it doesn't put power back into the hands of people, in the hands of workers, in the hands of communities, in the hands of farmers. What I like about agroecology is it's not just a scientific practice, it's a social movement. So inherently, it is an idea and a practice that comes from small-scale farmers, from peasants, teaching each other, working together, working with scientists. But it starts also with this notion of traditional knowledge, or what you could call the knowledge we gain from working, from experience and that practical knowledge. And then the science serves the practical knowledge. It serves that traditional knowledge. 
Right now, what we have is farmers that are almost working for science and technology, the other way around. And agroecology is, again, grounded in people's relationships and social movements. And it really comes from a grassroots perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting. The United Nations declared a universal human right to a healthy, sustainable environment. It would almost seem like we have a legal right to produce our food through agroecological methods. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to me as I've traveled around the world and see how different people use the language of human rights. And I think there's maybe two different traditions in the United States around how people understand rights. So there's one tradition that is very narrowly focused on the Constitution and rights as understood as in the Bill of Rights and in the Constitution. And I think that's unfortunate because the history of the United States we we'll have to be very frank, that constitution came out of a history of landowners, men who owned slaves, and an indigenous genocide. I mean, that's the historical context. And so it comes out of that narrowness. But there's also a tradition more broadly of human rights in the United States from different communities, whether it's racialized communities, whether it's poor rural communities, that understand human rights in that broader sense of people's inherent sense of dignity. And their inherent sense of solidarity between each other, between communities. So the understanding of what happens in the U.S. affects the world and what happens in the world affects the United States. And there's that human rights tradition, which I see in the U.S. So when we talk about the right to food, I think it is in the United States, even though it might technically may not be in the Constitution or you might not hear about it in the courts as such. But I think people understand that how you eat, what you eat, how you grow your food, how you share your food is inherent and in how you define who you are, your sense of community and your sense of dignity. That's what makes it a human right. So when you start from there, it's an entitlement. You're entitled to feed yourself, to feed your family and to have access to good food, however that might be. So that might be from hunting and fishing. That might be from having a fair market and a good wage. There's a lot of different ways you can get there. But just this agreement of food is a human right, it is something that is common and shared, I think, is a different way of thinking than treating food as a commodity or as charity. Exactly. We've got to take a break. I want to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Mr. Michael Fakri. He is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food and a professor at the University of Oregon Law School, where he teaches courses on human rights, food law, and commercial law. Well, I guess what we've really been talking about there in the last minute or two is about really food sovereignty. And you also brought forth a statement in one of your reports where you you recognize that local resilience to natural disaster and climate change is a key theme driving communities to develop this self-sufficiency in their food system. At least we would hope that that was a lesson brought home through the COVID-19 pandemic. What gets in the way of communities being able to develop that self-sufficiency in their food system. Yeah, I mean, so just to echo your point, I think that was a big lesson during the pandemic. Immediately, the COVID-19 pandemic triggered a food crisis. Immediately, supply chains broke down. Immediately, international trade was disrupted. And what people realized, the best way to take care of each other and to feed each other 
was to look to our local and regional food systems and take care of each other that way. So when I was talking about self-sufficiency, I didn't mean that all communities will be able to grow and raise all the food they need for themselves and not trade at all. It's impossible. I mean, take Hawaii, for example. Hawaii can't grow enough food for everyone. It inherently has to import food. Smaller countries, landlocked countries, we still need trade. But what I mean by self-sufficiency is first prioritizing your local food system, making sure that you have some basics and a community gets to decide what are the foods that matter to them? What are the basic necessities? What should their local food system have available so that people won't go hungry as a bare minimum? I mean, that shouldn't be the same, but as a bare minimum that your local food system has enough good food, sort of what are the main foods that people eat that's culturally appropriate, that people find delicious and find pleasure in and identify with. And then after you've prioritized taking care of your local food system, of course, trade, of course, you're going to export and import and exchange with other communities and find foods from other places. That's just part of the pleasures of life. But also how you trade is based on relationships of respect and reciprocity. So that notion of self becomes relational. It becomes who I am is defined by whom I live with and who I have good relationships with. It's not an individualistic understanding of the self. So that's what I meant by self-sufficiency. And so I think, you know, you introduced this idea of food sovereignty. This is an idea that's been bouncing around for 25, 30 years, really gaining popularity in the United States. You know, the state of Maine passed a food sovereignty ordinance and recently changed the state constitution of Maine now includes the right to food, building on food sovereignty. And what food sovereignty is about, it's about taking power back taking power away from these corporations, away from the small number of rich people that are buying up more and more land, that are turning everything into private property, and putting the power back into the hands of the people that make our food, into the hands of small farmers, into the hands of workers, but also into the hands of people who get to decide what they want to eat, what is good food as a cultural issue. And so our understanding of health and nutrition becomes broader. It becomes environmental social, cultural. And so food sovereignty is first and foremost about putting power back into the hands of the people. And by using this notion of sovereignty, it reminds us again of our relationship with land and how we grow our food and what food we eat always comes to our relationship with land. Mm. That brings me to the other physician paper that you wrote titled Seeds, Right to Life and Farmer's Rights. And specifically, I am concerned about the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization's strategic alliance with the pesticide lobby group CropLife International. It's a move that you have voiced concern over. I am deeply concerned about it. How and why did that relationship occur? Yeah, so the Food and Agriculture Organization, also known as the FAO, is based in Rome, and it's the part of the UN that deals with all things regarding food and agriculture, as its name implies. And and it has a fairly decent-sized budget and a lot of people working there. And so they can influence what type of projects happen in the world. They can influence what ideas are promoted. They can influence what science research happens. 
And as you said, they've recently formed some sort of partnership, or they're, they called it, it was through a memorandum of understanding, with CropLife, this pesticide industry organization. And my worry, and many people have raised this issue, is that pesticides, first and foremost, are poison. And they are promoted in a way as if there's no other way to grow food without using pesticides. Now, sometimes you have to use pesticides, granted, but there are ways to grow food that is, it requires a different way of thinking. And the research is there and the knowledge is there and the programs are there and the scientists are there to teach farmers how to use less, significantly use less pesticides. But it's often it's being promoted as the answer. And the companies that are selling pesticides are also often the same companies that own the DNA to seeds. So it goes hand in hand with pesticides, chemical fertilizers, and seeds. It's often the same companies. And so they're selling you a seed and they've patented the seed and they've designed the seed in a way that can resist the same pesticide that they're selling you. And it sounds like this miracle that this seed will produce all this a guaranteed amount of crops and this pesticide will kill everything that you don't want and it will not damage the, the plant you want. But if a company owns seeds, if they patent a seed, what they're patenting is life itself. And the seed is the origin of all ecosystems, ultimately. This is, this is everything. And for thousands of years, we have not patented seeds. The way we've created diversity and found new breeds is by farmers selecting the seeds that work and don't work. Now, we can use different scientific methods and advancements to pick better seeds and to, to work with seeds. But to patent a seed is to say the origin of life is now private property. And that, for me, is terrifying. Um, so the idea of pesticides and seeds often goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So why on earth would the Food and Agriculture Organization that is underneath the United Nations, why on earth would they allow such a relationship to happen? Yeah, I don't know. Is The honest answer is I'm not sure. And here's, here I'm sort of conjecture. I'm going to guess. So there's the generous interpretation and the cynical interpretation. The generous interpretation is they're misguided in their understanding of what is the way forward to produce good food that makes communities stronger. And they believe that using pesticides and patent seeds is the way forward, even though we have decades of evidence that shows otherwise. So it just that's the way they've been doing it for decades. And they're just doubling down despite climate change in, the, in everyone's face right now, despite increased pollution, despite the ongoing food crisis, there's just business as usual because it's hard for people to change their ways and it's hard for institutions to change. That's the generous interpretation. I think the more cynical interpretation would be money. This is big business. And so often if you follow the money, you get your answer. Mm. Well, the other point is that pesticides are produced through petrochemicals. And so we must be considering climate and how we are going to get ahead of what we see coming at us fast and furiously. So I think your focus on agroecology and raising concerns about the use of agrochemicals is critically important. I have one last point on my list and I'm hoping we can get to it because it is one of the key pieces that you authored that I absolutely love. 
and it is an attention to violence and food systems. And you write that the right to food is a fundamental and universal human right. Food must be available, accessible, adequate, but so often violence and conflict is interwoven in food systems. What do you want our listeners to know about this topic? The main cause of hunger, famine, and malnutrition, as I pointed, is a political failure. And that political failure often manifests in the form of violence. And what I mean by violence is a significant disruption in people's relationship with themselves and with the people around them. And it was to highlight that violence is built into the system by design. So the fact that food workers during the pandemic were treated as essential, but expendable, they had to work extra hours. They weren't always given protective equipment. They had to work in the fields. They had to work in factories under unsafe conditions. This is an example of violence. We are harming the workers that feed us. If you look at the amount of sexual harassment in kitchens, in restaurants, in plantations, and in farms, it's endemic. And the reason I say that it's built into the system is because what that does is that weakens people. It weakens their bargaining power. It weakens their ability to organize themselves. It weakens their ability to have a strong position in the face of people who are oppressing and exploiting them. And you see violence in the form of conflict, armed conflict on the rise everywhere in the world. And the reason I framed it as violence is to show all these are connected, that our food system is not working in some ways in that it's not making us stronger and healthier, but it is working in the way that is designed in that it produces all these different forms of violence. And I wanted to show how they're connected. But the other reason I, I frame things in terms of violence is to avoid the language of crisis. I think we're all overwhelmed by framing everything as a crisis. We had a pandemic and now it's a debt crisis and a food crisis and a climate change crisis. And in some ways, I understand people frame things as a crisis, as a call to action. But I think everyone knows that our situation on the planet is dire. And if people don't know that, they're part of the problem. So I don't think it's actually helpful to frame it as a crisis. It almost makes it feel like it's an exception and it avoids the everyday struggle and the everyday challenges we face. I think by understanding the challenges and uh, an issue of violence, it allows us to see how it's systemic. It is the system itself is the problem that we all experience it every day and that it's all interconnected. I am going to provide a link to this particular, it's just a two-page PDF on violence because I think it is one of the most enlightening observations of our food system that I have seen in a long time. And I really appreciate it. We just have a few seconds left. What would you like to leave our listeners with? To always remember food is pleasure and food is community and food is how we share our joy and experiences with each other. So always look for that opportunity to share a meal, to share food, to sit down with someone. That's the best part of food. And not to get too hung up and feel guilty about what you're eating. As long as it's forcing you to have a relationship with someone, to connect with someone, to call your mother to ask for a recipe, then that's a good thing. So just remember that food is pleasure and food is love. And that's what's really important. I couldn't agree more. We've got to close. So I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Michael Fakri. He is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. 
He's a professor at the University of Oregon School of Law. He's also the director of the Food Resiliency Project in the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Center. And again, I want to thank you for your time, your excellent observations and insights, and for sharing those with me. Thank you, Melinda. It was such a pleasure.